Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> I think that in our sermon today and perhaps over the next few weeks, you may have a deja vu moment when you ask yourself, didn't we just talk about this? Let me explain what's happening here. In our scripture readings this year, we've decided to follow the revised common lectionary. Those readings follow the church calendar throughout the church year, and the church calendar, as you probably know, goes through the life of Christ in the course of a year. Meanwhile, in our sermons, we've begun a study of the Gospel of Luke. And what is the Gospel of Luke? It's the story of the life of Christ. So we're doing two things uh, simultaneously that take us through the life of Christ. The lectionary readings, which we will get through in one year, and the uh, sermons on Luke, which we will get through in some more time. Maybe a few years, who knows. But here at the beginning, since we started them about the same time, the two are very close together. So we read about the baptism of Jesus just a couple of weeks ago, and now today we're going to preach on the baptism of Jesus. And this morning we read about the temptations of Jesus, and I know already that's our text for next week. So if, uh, if, if, you, if it seems like we just did this, be, just be patient. Uh, but before long, our readings will be up into the, uh, the sufferings and death of Christ. And meanwhile, our sermons of Luke will still be back in the beginning of his earthly ministry. So today we have before us the uh, baptism and genealogy of Jesus as Luke records it. Let me read it. Luke chapter 3, picking up with verse 21 and reading down to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> when all the people were baptized, Je- Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathanias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joash, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Jerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadan, the son of Er, the son of Joseph, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Minah, the son of Mathanah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Abimnadad, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of, Je- of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalael, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
Here we'll end our reading. I won't have much to say about all those names, but I know it does your heart good to hear me struggle through them just like you do. What I do have for you this morning to tell you is uh, two truths. And they sound very similar, but they tell us two different but profound things. The first is this. In Jesus, the Son of God became the Son of Man. In Jesus, the Son of God became the Son of Man. Have you ever noticed how people who use lots of words sometimes leave you wondering when they're through talking what it was they meant to say. While people who use few words, who say what they mean and stop, leave no question about what it was they were trying to say. All four of the gospel accounts talk about the baptism of Jesus. But Luke reports it in the fewest words, two verses. That makes it easier to understand the point he's trying to make, I think. We don't have to wade through a bunch of extraneous stuff. Luke says what he wants to say. And that point is clear. The man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Or as I put it in my earlier phrase, in Jesus, God the Son became a Son of Man. Even before we read these verses, the man-made headings in our Bible uh, tell us we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. Well, yes and no. Jesus' baptism was the occasion of this text, and we immediately have lots of questions about Jesus' baptism. Why was he baptized, and what was going on there? But Jesus' baptism is not actually the point of the passage as Luke records it. We know this from the grammar. People being baptized, Jesus being baptized, Jesus praying, those are all dependent clauses. They're introductory things, waiting to get to the main point. They're not the main point of the the paragraph at all. They're only the beginning. To set up the main point, the main point consists of the things that happened after Jesus was baptized. That's what Luke wants us to see. And there are three things that he mentions. First, he says, heaven was opened. Prophet Isaiah longed for that day. You may recall his cry to the Lord in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heaven and come down. Isaiah longed for the day that the Lord would reveal himself and come down to save his people. When when Jesus was baptized, Luke explained, this began to happen. The heavens were opened. God was sending an answer to Isaiah's prayer by sending his son to save. The second thing that happened was the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Now, now, now we don't know why the Spirit chose to take the form of a dove. There's no other reference to that in the Scripture that I can find. But we do know the significance of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. Remember 
his mother Mary's experience. The angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a child. And Mary said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, I quote, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the one to be born will be called the Son of God. And so here's the Spirit coming from the heavens that have been opened and descending down to envelop Jesus, Mary's son, that attests to the fact that this is the Holy One that was to be born, who is the Son of God. Then the third thing happened. The voice of the Lord came from heaven. The rabbis of the time taught that since the last prophet had come, God spoke only in echoes, or daughters of his voice. We would say echoes. Oh, but not on this day. As the heavens were opened and the Spirit descended as a dove, God spoke to make the point crystal clear. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Later on the Mount of Transfiguration, a similar thing happened as Jesus was transfigured before his disciples as he it was shining with glory like the sun. A cloud enveloped them, and a voice in the, from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It happened yet again, just before Jesus was crucified. God spoke from heaven, and the people were amazed. Three times in all, God spoke audibly from heaven to attest to this truth. In Jesus, the Son of God has become the Son of Man. Here at the scene of Jesus' baptism, we have the whole Trinity involved. All the members of the Godhead. We have God the Son in the person of Jesus being baptized. The heavens open and God the Holy Spirit descends upon him with power. And from the heavens, God the Father speaks to affirm the uniqueness of this Jesus his son. In Jesus, the Son of God became the Son of Man. William Wilcox sums up what took place. He says, after the people had been baptized, in their case, an admission that in spite of their Jewish birth, they were out of relationship with God and unacceptable to him. After they had been baptized, there came God's own declaration concerning Jesus. Now this one is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Jesus, unlike the rest, is acceptable to God. Like no other, he is from, he is from the start in a true relationship with God. He is in a distinctive sense the son of God. God himself says so. I tell you this morning, it's not enough to say Jesus was a great man, a great philosopher. Many people would agree with you on that. It's not even enough to say Jesus was a great prophet. Every Muslim would agree with you on that. We must confess what God declares. That Jesus is the divine Son who alone is pleasing to the Father. In Jesus, 
God the Son, the Son of God, has become the Son of Man. That's the first thing we need to hear from this text. Let's move on to the second point, which sounds very similar, but different. In Jesus, the sons of man become the sons of God. In Jesus, the sons of man become the sons of God. You know that old expression, a red herring? It's an expression which originally came from the use of bloodhounds to track a, whatever in a hunter, a person, or whatever. They could be thrown off track by taking a red herring, a smelly smoked fish, and dragging it across the trail for the dogs would travel, would, would follow that stronger scent rather than the scent they were tracking. Now that literal use of a red herring has become a metaphor in our culture. It's used a lot in literature for things which catch your attention but take you away from the story plot. Especially in mysteries, uh, authors intentionally use that. They introduce a red herring character that kind of leads you off in the in in, in, in left field somewhere to, to and then surprise you with, with the ending. Well, though I'm sure Luke did, not, Luke did not intend it, I think we have a, a somewhat of a red herring in the genealogy of Jesus, the second part of our text. Luke is making a pretty straightforward point here, I think, about Jesus' identity and about why Jesus came into the world. But one would never know it if you sit down and read some reference works on Luke chapter 3. Discussions about this genealogy throw everyone off track. So let me just take a minute and put it behind us and tell you the problem, acknowledge the problems with the genealogy here. And then we'll try to get to the point of it all. Lots of genealogies in the Old Testament, I think ten. In the New Testament, there are just two genealogies, and they're both genealogies of the ancestry of Jesus. One's in Matthew chapter 1, and one's here in Luke chapter 3. The problem is, they're different. Matthew starts with Abraham and traces his descendants forward to David and then on to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and traces his ancestors all the way back to Adam. Matthew has a very stylized genealogy. He has it set up in three sections of 14 generations. Luke has a simple list of 76 names from Jesus back to Adam. Worse still, Matthew's list of names is slightly different than Luke's list of names. A couple of places that they're divergent names. Some names added that the other one leaves out. So there's endless discussion about these genealogies. Some say, well, Matthew is tracing Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, his legal father. Luke is tracing Jesus' genealogy through Mary, his virgin mother. Others say, no, Matthew is tracing Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David, while Luke traces his actual biological line of descent. So this week I've read probably 50 pages about these genealogies, and I'll tell you, I still don't know. In fact, I've found very few people who are very dogmatic about what exactly is going on in these genealogies. 
But I think the whole discussion is an unintended red herring, something which gets us all excited about something in the wrong direction so that we miss the real point. So what's the point? In God's pronouncement from heaven and in the Holy Spirit's descent, Jesus' identity as the unique divine Son of God is clearly established. God says so in so many words. But now, Luke seeks to establish Jesus' place in the world, his relationship to the rest of humanity. And so, though Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to David and back to Abraham, showing that he's the Jewish Messiah, the the son of Abraham, the heir of the promises of the covenant, the son of David, the heir of the messianic throne, Luke traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, the first man. In other words, Jesus' ancestry looks a lot like yours and like mine. But Luke doesn't even stop there. He traces Jesus' ancestry beyond Adam back to God. For Adam was the first human son of God. In the sense that he was made in God's image. He was created to enjoy fellowship with his father creator before sin entered the picture. Alan Mahoney explains it this way. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, the true Israel, he's the true Adam, the real man. That is, Luke brings out the fact that in the title, Son of God, that that, that the title, Son of God, focuses attention on both Jesus' relationship to God and his relationship to humanity. In Jesus, God, the Son, takes on an identity in solidarity with all humanity. He becomes a son of Adam. But at the same time, in Jesus, all humanity gets a new beginning. In this second Adam, this second son of God. Here, Luke subtly introduces Jesus' plan to save not just Israel, but the whole world. All who trace their ancestry back to Adam. Or as I've stated in the second point, in Jesus, the sons of men become sons of God. This is the point of Jesus coming into the world. Not just to be a Jewish Messiah and reestablish David's rule in Jerusalem. That was never his intention. He came to make the sinful sons of Adam from all humanity into the children of God. For this he suffered and died, a sin bearer for Adam's race. For this he rose from the dead, the victorious head of a new generation of those he redeemed. As we read in John 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become 
children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of, the human, of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The book of Hebrews explains it in chapter 2. I quote, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2 introduces all of this, telling us that Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. In Jesus, the sons of men become sons of God. Well, this morning I call you to follow Jesus, to turn away from simply being a sinful son of Adam like everyone else, and embrace Jesus as your Lord, the true son, the real man, the new Adam, because he is the son of God. Not only the human son of God like Adam, he is able to save those children of Adam who trust him. For he took our place, bearing God's judgment against the sons of Adam on the cross. That we might share in his place as the children of God, adopted, reborn into the Father's eternal family. In Jesus, the sons of men become the sons of God. Like every good writer, Luke is subtle. He introduces ideas without completely expounding them. He just drops them there, like like seeds, which he knows will grow as we listen to the story of Jesus. Seeds which will bear much fruit, would later be picked when it's ripe by the apostles and presented to us. That's what we have recorded here in the story of Jesus' baptism and genealogy. Seeds of thought that we might read right by without noticing. But these seeds are the beginning of great truths. At least these two. That in Jesus, the Son of God has become the Son of Man. So that in Jesus, the sons of men might become sons of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we read through your word so quickly and we don't ponder it. Perhaps because we don't know the rest of your word very well, we sometimes don't see the connectedness of what we read with the rest of the scripture. And certainly when we get to a genealogy, we just, our eyes just pass down through it and we're happy to get to the other side. Oh, but thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word that in seed form here at the beginning of this gospel tells us, hints at what it is that you're doing in the sending of your son, who Jesus is before you and who he is in relationship to all humanity, that we might know him as our Savior. 
and our Lord. Grow these truths in us till they bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.